Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Path to Profitability sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Wait, the Path to Profitability? I messed that up. I meant to say Drive to Profitability. Oh, okay. As I was a drive like, to survive Yeah, joke, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. totally messed it up. There we see, Kurt, I love the <laughs> Others let this go. I'm like... I obviously we're going to talk F1 and he's like the path to pro I'm like, what? Like, is he implying that in some way that these teams are not profitable or the series is not profitable? <laughs> Didn't make any sense to me. And now I know why, because Novi hyphen Williams messed it up. I, I was expecting maybe inside the paddock club podcast or something. Yeah, like exactly. The paddock podcast, something. See, Ah, uh, maybe we need a new co-host. Do we, we want to just scratch fresh... the whole thing and restart? <laughs> no, no, no. We are not scratching this at all. The whole world is just like, path to profitability. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. What? All right. Well, the cat's out of the bag. We're discussing Formula One because Mr. Bodenhausen took his talents to the paddock. Uh, and it's the first time, the inaugural. I hate when people say first annual. Does that bother you, Kurt? Oh, 100%. Yes. All right, yeah, I uh, hate I'm sticking with the inaugural. Yeah, you tell everybody it's not an annual until you've done it, and then it's the second annual. That's fine, but do not call it first annual. The inaugural F1 uh, valuations, no surprise, Ferrari uh, atop the list, but why don't you give me top line, Kurt, uh, what you found, and any surprises? We'll start with, we'll start with that. Yeah, no surprise. Ferrari on top, $3.1 billion. Uh, it is, people told me. It is not buyable. Uh, it's unsellable. It's one of those unicorn franchises. Uh, hasn't won 15 years, but they still sit alone on top. Uh, rounding out the top three probably wouldn't surprise people. Mercedes, number two, 2.7. Red Bull right behind them, uh, 2.42. Uh, those two have dominated in terms of wins over the last decade. And, and Red Bull's been running away with things since the start of 2022. Um, I think what surprised me and what a lot of the talk is right now is, is uh, to Evan's point, profitability. Uh, the, the, the flip has been, <laughs> the switch has been flipped uh, and it's, it's maybe not on yet, but it's the dimmer is going up uh, in, as teams work through these cost caps and what it means uh, in terms of making money. Because, because the reality was that, that, you know, this was a billionaire's club where people just, became millionaires because they were flushing money away. Uh, there was very few profits in the sport outside of one or two teams. Everybody else was losing a ton of money. And so the idea is with a cost cap, 140 million down to 135 million, which doesn't account for all costs, which is why you still have teams losing money. Teams And teams are really uh, pushing the, you know, threading the needle here in terms of uh, what they can keep outside uh why don't you um, explain that, that a little bit? Just, what, what are some of those things? What, what are some of those things? Let's, just well, give me kind of layman's well, look at what the teams are doing. The two big things, driver salaries, uh, marketing, those sit outside of it. But there's some fungible items uh, in terms of how you, uh, you credit. It's the same kind of stuff that we see in U.S. sports with salary caps in terms of what gets put into basketball-related income. And, and so... What's, uh, what's cleaner is in the NBA, you have Adam Silver. You have one person overseeing the whole thing. F1 works a little differently. You have 
F1, which is part of Liberty Media. You've got FIA, which is the uh, motorsports governing body that oversees the sports. And there's no one like Adam Silver who's, look, who's overseen this whole thing. So Red Bull got penalized last year for exceeding the cap. There's talk that a bunch of teams um, exceeded it for 2022. Um, and so those penalties would come down later in the fall. Right now, they're reviewing all the finances. Um, so that, that's, that's, uh, that's what's going on right now. But long term, as you're looking out five, 10 years, uh, the profit picture should look dramatically better than it's looked for decades in this sport. I, I want to take a step back for a second, Kurt, um, and I'm hoping you can explain to me because I, I am a little this is the rare league that is publicly traded in some way, right? Cause it's, it's owned by Liberty media. You're doing valuations for each of these teams. The, the enterprise value of F1 via Liberty media that includes all of these numbers, or is this, this is all separate from the enterprise value of the, of F1 itself. I I'm a little confused about what, what these numbers include and what these numbers don't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bernie Ecclestone became a billionaire through his ownership of F1. It works a little differently than the NFL, the NBA, NHL, where all the money funnels down to the teams for the most part, where some of it stays in the league office, but basically to cover expenses. Yeah, that's operating Uh, expenses, right? Yeah. And and in this case, F1 is a for-profit company that is owned by Liberty. And its revenue uh, is around $3 billion, similar to the total of the 10 teams. Uh, but from a valuation standpoint, uh, the stock market's loved it. It's, it's since uh, Liberty launched a separate tracking stock of F1, uh, it's, it's, more prof- it's much more profitable than the individual teams because it controls the whole ecosystem. And they distribute part of the profits to teams, about 45% of revenue last year. And, and what's happened is it's much more profitable uh, st- total return on the stock has been 25% roughly since they launched the tracking stock after Liberty bought F1. Um, and the, right now, the enterprise value for Li- uh, F1 under Liberty is $18.5 billion, So more than the 10 teams combined, which we value just a tick over $15 billion. Yeah, and we got a question on this uh, on, on Twitter. Um, we we had put out this kind of list of comparing F one franchises to other other leagues and and and, and teams in those leagues, uh, and this idea that NFL, as you said, an NFL game ticket sales, merchandise, all of that filters down to the team in some capacity, typically in a lot of F1 races, right? There's a lot of the economics of events, venues, et cetera, that also happen outside of both F1 and the teams, right? There's kind of another piece of the equation here being the venue operator. So in some ways, the F1's business, if we're thinking about it relative to to American leagues as we do, uh, it's actually even bigger than a lot of the numbers we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Because yes, to your point, you, you're not you're not folding in those venues. So when they go to Miami, Miami pays a site fee, uh, yeah. and that goes to F1, and that's a revenue stream. Media rights are obviously uh, a revenue stream, and then sponsorships. The, those 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 ones out at the say league level uh, that that sponsor F1 overall. Uh, those are the three real big buckets uh, that Liberty is making money through their ownership of Formula One. What are so, the prospects? So go, of, oh, good, good. I was just going to say, going back now to the to the, the cost cap measures that you're talking about, uh, it, the F1 has kind of historically had this really bad imbalance of competitive balance, right? Uh, you said like Major League Baseball. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, worse, right? There's three teams: Ferrari, Mercedes, and 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 Red Bull that have won 21 of the past 24. 
team championships, right? It's yeah. It's been very imbalanced. And Scott and I talk on this show sometimes about how sometimes – you know, inequality is good for sports leagues, right? I think the the NBA has really benefited from this era of the Warriors and the, the Cavaliers and the Heat just being dominant teams. Um, how, how much or how do you think about the economics of owning an F1 team in this model versus the one that it seems like we're getting towards where much smaller teams probably do believe, or and, and they say at least, that they that, that we could have a very a very competitive racing circuit in F1 in five years that we haven't had maybe ever in the sport. Right. No, 100%. Because, because the difference is, you know, to some degree, money talks when you're thinking about Major League Baseball payrolls, but we see it all the time, where whether it's the Rays, you know, historically the Oakland A's, the Orioles in recent years, these teams break through and can win. That doesn't happen in F1. You know, you, you move uh, Max Verstappen to the Williams car, he doesn't win. He, yeah. he literally doesn't matter. I mean, the driver is 5 10% of their performance. The car is 90% of their performance. And, 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 and the car is, is money. Money talks. And so you had those three teams. You mentioned Ferrari, Mercedes, uh, Red Bull. They're spending more than $400 million a year. Uh, on their budgets. And, and so now, and you had other teams who are spending $100 million a year. They're, they're, it was impossible to catch up. Uh, so the idea is those three teams are still benefiting from the legacy of the billions of dollars that they've sunk into infrastructure and learning every technical nuance that gives them that extra tenth of a second uh, on a lap. And, and so they will benefit for that for a few years. But to your point, over time, five, 10 years, uh, you will see those teams at the bottom move up. And so those are the ones that have really benefited, I think, from the cost cap. And, and that, that entry price to buy a franchise where, you know, you guys wrote about it this week in terms of Alpine, you know, it traded hands for, you know, a symbolic British one pound, uh, you know, last decade. And here they are raising money at more than $900 million. So it's those teams at the bottom that were, literally going out of business left and right uh, because they couldn't keep up and they were just spending themselves in, into oblivion and they just wanted to get out of the sport. Uh, so so the, those teams at the top have always been extremely valuable, uh, almost ungettable because Mercedes, although Mercedes has uh, spread its equity around a little bit, but Ferrari is not selling. Red Bull hasn't been looking to raise money. Uh, so it's those teams at the bottom now that really have value, have a franchise value that didn't exist before. We're chatting with Kurt Bodenhausen, valuations man extraordinaire. Now, Kurt, let me ask you this, but based on what you just said, let's say you dip into uh, some of the assets of the Badenhausen family office and you decide that you want to invest in an F1 team and Max Verstappen comes in and says, I want $10 million a year. Lewis Hamilton comes in and says, I want $10 million a year. Um, some guy that I don't really know comes in and says, well, I can win with the really good car. Pay me a million dollars. Are you telling me, are you taking Verstappen, Hamilton, or the guy, or Gasly? What's it, what was the first name, Evan? Pierre Gasly. Pierre Gasly, yeah. who, who in, I mean, we haven't even mentioned, you hinted at Jerry Cardinal and Ryan Reynolds, and I want to get to that. But if, if, I, if I am Pierre Gasly and I've got Ryan Reynolds coming in, I am feeling really good about my Q rating right about now or what I think it'll be. Who are you hiring? Who, 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 are, you, uh, who are you spending for and why? Well, this is a sponsor-driven sport, so stars help drive eyeballs, engagement. Uh, so, so if you can get Lewis Hamilton in, in the seat of your car, you want Lewis Hamilton. You know, Verstappen is, in terms of 
he's been winning like crazy, uh, but he doesn't carry the same buzz and cachet that someone like Lewis Hamilton does. So he's going to attract uh, those sponsor dollars uh, because, you know, he's the Tiger Woods of the sport uh, and, and, and money follows him. I'm intrigued by this idea that drivers are so little that that, that the real value of having Lewis Hamilton is not because he's the best driver in the world, but is because when when you bring him to the Timex event or whatever it is your sponsor is, that he really does command uh, that that much of a presence. That they're more of a, a kind of a marketing thing. But is that built are, on the uh, fact that he's won in the past? Things. Well, that's oh, yeah. the question, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Total, so it's, it's, right. It's you have to be a good circular... car to get the reputation. Yeah. Yes. To, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yes. Yeah. It's a snowball effect. A hundred percent. He's Lewis Hamilton because he has seven titles and he's, he's charismatic and he, he's got a lot of buzz. And so apropos of nothing, by the way, on my flight down to the Miami F1 race uh, and I shall protect the name here. But uh, I, I was with a Ferrari executive sitting next to me and I thought it was so central casting it was absolutely perfect. The blazer, the ascot. And, and then when we landed, I got up and I popped open the bin up top and there's this like bright Red, red leather bag and I, and I kind of took it and I, and I jokingly said to the I go this yours <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know there's I mean just think about it as as luxury brand as lifestyle right I, it, it's it, this is a great promotional uh, tool as well it, it's it you could have lost money on your f1 team if at, at the at the mothership you wind up selling tons and tons of Ferraris. It, it, it serves multi-purpose here. It's not just about winning on the racetrack. Do, do you think we get to a point again in U.S. sports where their teams are named after brands? Like it's obviously a very direct through line here that these are engine makers and, and, and this is auto sports, but we used to have it in American sports all like over. the Nippon right? Ham Fighters? Exactly, right? That, that this we have is, it in youth. Uh, Eben, we the, ha- normally it filters down from pro to youth, right? We have this in youth sports. Mm. Little Caesars hockey team. Honey baked hockey team in Detroit, named after obviously corporations. We've got a G League, right, which is Gatorade, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a little a little different, but but I do wonder if at some point, as we as we talk about a lot on the show, right, about the the expanding of who can buy into teams because they're getting so expensive. If corporate ownership uh, as a direct marketing thing at some point comes back. All right, so Kurt, help me out here. Uh, Alpine big news last week. They sold you know piece to Jerry Cardinal. Um, Peace to Ryan Reynolds, to um, Michael B. Jordan's part of that group. Rob McElhenney, also part of the group. What will this team be worth six months, one year, five years from now, if what I anticipate to happen, that flywheel of, of content, of, of global appeal, of stardom, what happens to the valuation of that team? Besides, it goes up. You know, I mean, I mean, if you can try and quantify, try and quantify what you think Th- that group will do because Evan and I talked about on the last show when we talk about limited partnerships in teams or whatever the money is great but everybody has the money these days the, what general partners are looking for is what else do you what expertise what are you bringing to the group that helps the overall entity a hundred percent and these guys listen we, we see this with other sports leagues institutional investors money people they are circling these assets they are checking in every week people are taking calls every week you know half dozen teams i talked to said i'm getting calls all the time i'm looking for the right person i'm looking for that strategic partner that person again that's going to help me audi buying into sauber audi's going to now spend hundreds of millions of dollars and turn that into a really strong brand uh and race team 
you know, the group that's buying into Alpine, they bring a different skill set. I mean, Red, Redbird brings, uh, you know, incredible expertise in terms of operating uh, U.S. sports leagues and generating sponsorships and doing events. And they've been had fantastic success with that. And the Wrexham guys, they bring buzz. You know, they're going to bring a ton of buzz to this. And so what, what have they done for Wrexham? It went, went from zero, right? They didn't, they didn't pay any money. They just contributed some operating capital. And now it's how much is Wrexham worth now? So that, that, that's a, an infinity return uh, from zero to where it is now. Uh, so I, I think the teams at the bottom have the most opportunity in terms of uh, moving up in value. And, and really kind of that mid-tier group of teams that we're talking about. Alpine mid-table club. Um, Alfa Romeo potentially, Aston Martin, uh, they're all in that, that area where they can jump up. You know, they're not going to catch Ferrari. They're not going to catch Red Bull, but they have an opportunity to move from that $800, $900 million range to suddenly being two plus billion dollar franchises over the next couple of years as more sponsorship revenue comes in, as the profitability picture improves. How, Kurt, how, how did they, how did F1, how did they convince the big teams to come along with this, right? It sounds like F1 a few years ago is what we're seeing in European soccer, right? There's runaway clubs, there's really valuable mm-hmm. ones, there's ones that are at the bottom and will always be stuck at the bottom because they're not going to be able to spend the way that Chelsea and Man U is. And those clubs want more cost caps, right? Those The smaller clubs want exactly what F1 is doing. The bigger clubs are, are standing in the way of that and they have tremendous power. How is it that in, in a similar sounding structure, F1 was able to convince, or maybe they didn't even need to, but how is it that they got the F1s and the Ferraris and the Red Bulls to agree to this thing that really benefits their competitors more than it does them? Yeah, no, 100%. Well, there's a Concord agreement that is in place uh, for five years that governs how F1 is run. And they vote on it every five years and everybody's got to get on board. And so what has happened here, though, is under the last Concord agreement, it was the first one that was done under Liberty Media. And so Mm -hmm. what they did under their ownership. And so they very much went in and said, listen, you know, they've had experience with U.S. sports leagues. And I think they're saying, you know, look at look at these valuations. You know, a rising tide helps everybody. We can't have three strong partners and then other teams who are just trying to get out of the sport, you know, who are giving their teams away. That uh, was the old NFL argument years ago. Like Wellington Marriott didn't need to be convinced that, okay, great, you're the Giants, you're worth X, but you have to play somebody. You need a yeah. you need yeah. a counterparty to be successful in the league. He bought in. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, l- luckily, he, they, they had a partner like Wellington Mara who was willing to buy in. I'm sure if Jerry Jones was Wellington Mara back then, that ain't an easy conversation. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that ain't an easy conversation, okay? Uh, yeah. Listen, uh, Greg Maffey, Liberty Media CEO, uh, their last conference call, he said, and I'll read what he said. He said, you know, one of the things that we at F1 with Liberty's help have been trying to do is build a mentality that I'll credit the NFL for which is one league that we benefit when everybody benefits. And so we compete hard, but then we want to grow the entire ecosystem. And that's really what they've said. You're only as, you're only as strong as your weakest link is the approach that Liberty has taken. And so they, the, the prize money, which used to filter much better in terms of the top teams, what they got, you know, they've shrunk the percentages that the top teams get and the teams at the bottom are getting more prize money. 
there are, I know there are Liga MX owners that may be listening to this and are, are nodding so hard that they're hitting their head on the I, steering wheel. I can wheel. name them. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, do we think that, the, that, that uh, again, European soccer is obviously so different because there is promotion and relegation, which, which, which hits valuations in, in a slightly different way. But do we think that European Premier League is looking at what's happening in F1 and saying, oh, maybe if we do institute some kind of cost cap measure here, Maybe not just the little teams, but maybe everybody does benefit from from certainty on on, on the cash flow on the balance sheet uh, that that does make the valuations even higher for clubs like Chelsea and Arsenal and Man U, et cetera. I, I owe 100 percent. And the, the American owners that have come in and know that American system, uh, they 100 percent look at it that way. The problem they run into is they're not just competing with each other. And so they're, they're competing mm-hmm. in European competition. So. Yeah. Do, you, do you get the other four big leagues to buy in that that's that's really hard to get to to get everybody on the same page in one league and then have to worry about what's happening in the other four leagues uh, that dominate Champions League that 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 that's mm. that, that's the tough sell. Right, Kurt, let me put you on the spot here because I hear this from American owners who are getting involved in in other leagues that let's just say EPL, let's just say F1 that sort of the marketing flywheel that exists, uh, the stadium revenue is far beyond what a, a sophisticated American system produces or generates in revenue, that they're bringing the know-how of what American leagues do and how to generate revenue, how to squeeze a nickel from every, every angle. Uh, how far behind, if at all, that's, that's the thesis, that's the hypothesis. Now we, we will employ a scientific method, uh, and that's just as you talking to people. Um, how, far, how far behind the American system of revenue generation are these other leagues? They're behind. Uh, I don't know, hard to quantify. It, it's, it is a different model, though. It's great that Arsenal has this gigantic global audience but it's really hard to monetize, you know, people who are living in, uh, you know, poor countries. You know, they're not going to suddenly start spending a hundred dollars a year. Uh, you know, they might buy one jersey every five years. That might be the extent of their spending power. So I think that's that's trouble. It's hard to just quickly monetize your fan base that might number four hundred million people. Um, but, but, and I don't again. even think, by the way, you have to stick with poor countries. I mean, anecdote, just one of, last time I was, in, uh, I was in London on my taxi ride back to Heathrow, I was talking to my driver who had a 13-year-old son, big Chelsea fan, uh, but could not afford the New Jersey. He just said it was 100 yeah. and something pounds. Yeah. And I mean, he's a working guy. And he yeah. just said, you know, it, it's just cost prohibitive. Uh, I take my son to the one game. He wasn't yep. a season. He takes him to the game, but I don't know where he got the, t- got the tickets or whatever. But, I mean, and sort of th- that's what you're – I mean, that's what we're talking about, which is, you know, just middle-class working people cannot afford or don't have the discretionary income to go just uh, buying all this stuff. Yep, yep, 100%. Uh, they've made progress in terms of the stadium development. Uh, what Tottenham's done has been, you know, is the blueprint for what uh, a lot a lot of people are trying to copy. But uh, they've built this incredible facility that has uh, non-soccer events and popular with the NFL. And so there is room there on, on the stadium side. But you can't. You're not going to suddenly be generating 250 million dollars, 300 million dollars, like Jerry Jones does from from uh, luxury suites and tickets that he's selling at his stadium. 
the, the thing that I, 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 and I've never been to an F1 race, but, but from what I understand, I think one of the things they've done well, and Scott, you were in Miami uh, this year, is, is they, they seem to have understood that, that building multi-day festival-style mm-hmm. environments around their races is the thing, right? There's, there's music events, there's qualifying day, and then there's the, the race day. Uh, the people I know who go to events go for four days, right? They fly in on, yeah. on Thursday and they leave on Sunday. Um, and that actually seems fairly progressive in some way. U.S. sports, in my opinion, NFL teams, right, they play on Sunday, but the only college football really seems to have embraced this idea of we can put a country singer on the stage uh, right next to the stadium on, on, on Friday night and then they'll play on Saturday. This multi-day thing, uh, F1 actually seems to be, in my opinion, at least a little ahead of the game versus U.S. teams uh, from understanding the kind of event and spectacle around it. It still it's, had a very, to me, it still had a very premium feel. Everything yeah. had a very luxury, premium feel. Unlike when yeah. we went to the Indy 500 mm. and we're peeking around and the president of the Speedway is going, that's where the college kids hang out. They don't care about the race, but yeah. we're going to, you know, Shaq is spinning tunes over there and we'll get a whole, you know, many thousands of them. They don't care that the cars are going on behind them. They're there just to hang out and be at the concert. And there's tents. I, there's tents and there's tents all and, over. Yeah. Yeah. Ain't no feel like that at the F1 Miami race. So. Yeah. Just, just a different thing. Kurt, stick with us. We got, what do we got? A couple of minutes left. We'd like to touch on a couple of things. Let's, let's go to Eben's favorite topic: fanatics, vertical integration. <laughs> he, that's our big joke for years. Fanat- I mean, before anybody knew who Michael Rubin was and what fanatics did, they were preaching vertical integration. And then to see sort of how it's come to life and what the company is now, we get, a, we always get our vertical integration. The, the valuation's joke. gone vertical. Yeah, yeah it's sure. gone vertical. Yeah, yeah straight up integrate that. Um, well, but they, uh, speaking of going up, the price point they are paying for the points bet. Uh, U.S. business. They made a bid. DraftKings made a counter bid. They came back, and it looks now as if uh, Fanatics will indeed get that business and, and enter that space that DraftKings was trying to sort of. I'm gonna let me see if I can do a video here. Block them out like it'll box out <laughs> on, on a basketball court. Didn't quite work though. Really interesting little you know two month long business feud here between DraftKings and, and and Fanatics and who knows how long some of the resentment between these two companies lingers moving forward. Uh, but but you're right. A month and a half ago, Fanatics put in a deal. It looked like it was going to sail through to buy PointsBet's U.S. business for 150 million dollars. Then a couple of weeks later, DraftKings said they had put in a, a non binding but better offer. It forced. Points bet to go back to both of them and start negotiating. And then uh, ahead of the deadline this week, uh, DraftKings, er, Fanatics raised its bid, added $75 million to it, so another 50% up to 225 And then DraftKings didn't even submit, from, from, from what PointsBet said, didn't even submit a binding offer. So it's unclear if Fanatics even needed to raise, uh, to raise the offer at all. But um, it's going to accelerate Fanatics' push into, into, into a lot of new markets. It's going to give them some technology that I'm sure they'll be able to put to use immediately. Um, but to me, the most interesting part of this is kind of the intrigue here between DraftKings and Fanatics and Two companies that were not competitors until two, two or three, three months ago, and are now increasingly going to be competitors. Particularly as I think both of them have these visions of being bigger e-commerce companies. Obviously, Fanatics has, has done this very well, um, but I think these two companies are going to clash more and more, and maybe not just in in sports betting moving forward. Now, if memory serves, Steve Cohen, when he got passed over for a promotion years ago. He wound up buying the guy who got the job's house and destroying it. 
like you know so uh, some some i mean if you're looking for anecdotes to sort of give you an insight into the into that sounds the like a who, billions uh yeah, yeah, yeah. plot well, line yeah well, well you know what is it based you know, on I, right I, I do, yeah. um I, I i don't know this about michael rubin so this is i want to make clear that yes we've talked to michael yes we have what but this is pure supposition that michael doesn't like he has a long memory that's what i would say that michael <laughs> has a long memory and if he ever buys a house that once belonged to jason robbins i would assume that i'm going to throw the word raised in there <laughs> that, that's all in keeping the linear lead like that's I, I i'm just guessing he's not going to forget that right i think that's that's probably right there there was some reporting uh, past couple weeks about uh, a potential that, that fanatics and DraftKings were in talks about a potential merger at some point in the last few years, uh, in, in the way earlier stages of Fanatics trying to plan what its sports betting aspirations were going to look like, that obviously didn't happen. And, and there very well may be some lingering or, or, or feelings that, that, that date back to that, maybe even on both sides. Um, but yeah, as I, as I think about the, the future of Fanatics and, and their sports betting aspirations, um, I do think the, 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 the little tiff here with, with, with DraftKings adds a whole new kind of interesting intrigue. Go ahead, Kurt. Jump in. Your thoughts on fanatics? Oh, hockey stick. The valuation. Uh, it's unbelievable. I, we've been, right to, I love Kurt. goes right to the valuation. Yeah, I right. love it. We've been waiting on this. So, I mean, you know, it's... What are they I'm going public? I'm, we're waiting to see them go public, and I'm fascinated to see. How, I mean, they've had success in all these different verticals. Is betting going to work? I mean, is betting seems to be such a harder animal to tackle. I just, I don't think it's automatically, oh, we've had success here, here, merchandise, we've done well, memorabilia being, cards. Yeah, but the yeah. thesis being we have, what, 90, 100 million people, we have their data, they're on our right. platform, they buy our stuff. Of yeah. course they will utilize whatever bet product that is, and yeah. that's the same thing that was with Barstool, it, but it, it ain't that easy. Yeah, I think the thing that that really sticks out to me, and I talked to Matt King, who's running Fanatic Sportsbook, uh, about this this idea a, a month ago. But but everything Fanatics has done so far, to Kurt's point, is something it can build a moat around. Right? It is the dominant, almost monopolistic force in in licensed sports apparel. And it's essentially going to do that, I believe, in trading cards in, in the very near future. Um, betting is a totally different animal, right? Success in betting is not... 95% market share, which it is in, in some of the other Fanatics businesses. F- success for Fanatics market share could be 20% in betting. Who knows, right? This is, this is an industry that Fanatics will never dominate in the way it dominates its other businesses. And that, I think, is an interesting kind of new wrinkle to the, to the portfolio because so much of Michael's success so far, I think, has, has been not just seeing white space, but seeing white space that he can dominate and own. And this is going to have to be different. All right, let's finish up with the NFLPA breaking news right before we hit the record button. Uh, The Players Union over the NFL has a new executive director, Lloyd Howell, replacing our friend Demoris Smith. Uh, Quick little background, former executive at Booz Allen. Uh, He was at Carlisle. Uh, If you want to just for fun look at education, uh, I love this because, you know, we can can make, you know, uh, assumptions based on this. UPenn undergrad and uh, HBS, Harvard Business School, MBA. So uh, what we said, Eben, and I think the discussion is, and I'll, hey, Kurt, you go first. The discussion that Eben and I had quickly was that the, those taking over the unions now, Tamisa Tremaglio, uh, Tamika at, uh, at the NBPA, coming from Deloitte, um, and now Lloyd Howell, shows that the, the main purpose, the main, the main goal of unions is to figure out, I've got this collection of famous athletes that can do 
a whole lot of things together mm -hmm. or like individuals, but if you can bring that group together that you can monetize. This is no longer about how do I negotiate the best collective bargaining agreement labor contract. And by the way, the NFL has labor peace. So what is the task of this union at this point in time? Yeah, 100%. They've been leaving money on the table for decades and, and just handing Ooh, those rights over. flash right there. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Look at you speaking in quotables. There's your headline. There's yeah. your headline. <laughs> Badenhausen, NFLPA, leaving money on table for decades. No, but I, I think they're, they're, to your point, they've aggressively been trying to monetize these rights in a much better way. And, and I would have said, if they didn't have labor peace, I would have said, it's, it's a challenging situation to come into because if you think back to the last labor vote, I mean, you know, it's a handful of votes uh, the going the other way. No deal. Uh, so, so that was a that was a challenging situation for um, D. Smith to operate in over the last couple of years. But uh, to your point, I, I think there is an opportunity uh, to collectively uh, generate more revenue for the individual players uh, by, by, by working together. No, 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 you can keep going. This is, see, Kurt doesn't know this. When I put my finger up like this, it's, hey, Eben, let me go one more thing before you jump in. But you could have finished that thought. You, you want to finish that thought, Kurt? No, I, I, there's so many opportunities out there as, uh, as we've progressed in terms of technology and we've seen with NFTs and all these other things that if, if the PA can negotiate collectively, it's an opportunity to certainly generate more money for their individual players. Look at Kurt, seemingly still bullish on NFTs. Way to go, Kurt. See, this is, this is where I like to have fun, Kurt. This is where uh, I like to put a little pressure on Novi Williams because uh -oh. he was going to come in with a very – I can tell when he prepares, I can see he has something good to say. <laughs> this will be worthwhile. It'll I did be have something roll. good to say. Yeah, see, see, it'll be something good. But see, this is how I will – I will attempt to foil this. I am, I am telling him right now that the onus of closing the show is being put mm, on him. So okay. he is now in his brain. There's, oh, there's like 37% of his brain that is, okay, wait, producer name, wait a minute, how do we close it? What's the thing at the end? So I want to see how he handles getting this last point while not being distracted in the medulla oblongata where he can get this right. Go ahead, Novi, shut it down. You're, you're, you're so taking us all the way home. I, I will make one more point and then I, and then I will close. Um, I, I think the timing, um, certainly the timing of this hire, and you mentioned it, Scott, that there's, there's, there's labor, labor piece now for the NFLPA. Uh, when, when D. Smith, who, who is the, the previous executive director, when he took over in March 2009, he essentially got tossed right into the deep end of labor negotiations. And, and D. was a lawyer. It was clearly a higher understanding that the next 12 months, 18 months, were going to be absolutely critical from a labor negotiation standpoint for the NFLPA. Now the, the requirement is different because of that labor piece. So, so I do think that, again, the fact that you have this long stretch where, where, where this person does not need to sit across from, from Roger Goodell and, and, and the lawyers and, and start negotiating things does, I think, give freedom to seek somebody with a different background uh, that I think can do, uh, can do a lot of different things, which Kurt is talking about. Here comes the pressure point, Kurt. Now he's got to close the show. He's All right, are we wrapping it, it up here? All right, oh, that oh. is the end of the show. He is Kurt Badenhausen on Twitter at K Badenhausen. Uh, the guy laughing uh, and putting pressure on me is Scott Soshnik <laughs> on Twitter at Soshnik. I am Eben Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The show is produced. Uh, we got two producers essentially now. Uh -huh. Keith Zanardi and Aaron Greenewald. So thanks well to done, Keith, well Keith and Aaron. Um, and Cora Veltman, who is Sportico's digital media editor, would like you to know that you can follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. No, we are no, the no, Sportacast. No, no. 
which is the hub of the Sportico Media Network. Thank you very all. He loves that. Peace and good night. Wherever you get your podcast. Oh, he can't get that out of his head. Oh, wow. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having me.